What? On May 18th, 2012, Julia Craven wrote a piece for Slate called The Academic Story of African American English Has Been Wrong All Along. And in this piece she writes, accents are complicated, everybody has one, but then what you're aware of and what the people around you are aware of and what is stigmatized and what is not stigmatized, it's all going to affect how somebody speaks. That's where you get into code switching. That's where you get into having telephone voice or quote, white voice, where people feel like they have to navigate making their speech less stigmatized. I recognize the reasons for it. I recognize that it is strategically sound and intelligent to do so, but I also don't think in an ideal world that it should be what people have to do. What happens is in the United States, one, people don't really know much about linguistics in general unless they study linguistics, and two, all of those things become pathologized when we're talking about African American English, even though they're normal and natural. Tons and tons and tons of languages make exactly these kinds of changes. African American English is unique, but all of the individual things that make it unique are cross linguistically common and attested. It just gets pathologized in the United States because of our history of race and racism. Language is complicated. The way humans communicate using that language is even more complicated, and it is in this complexity that the beauty and the infinite depth of human communication is revealed. It is also in this complexity that systems arise and are built which cater to certain ways of speaking and harm others. Turning to the field of writing studies, a very white academic voice is usually valued above most others. Think about the last time you were given a bad grade on a piece of writing because it had grammatical errors or it didn't sound academic enough. What does that even mean? What is academic writing, and how did this standard become the norm? As writers, we might, uh, we might be able to challenge these systems that privilege certain kinds of writing over others, and how might we do that? In 2019, at the Conference on College Composition and Communication, the largest writing studies conference in the United States, Asuo Inoue gave a rather famous speech in which he directly addressed the need for action, change, and awareness of white language supremacy in the field of writing studies. I'd like to read some excerpts from this speech, and for the studio assignment this week, I would like to encourage all of you to read the uh, text version of Inoue's speech from 2019, which is linked here in, the, in, the, in, in this module, as well as perhaps take a look at the video, and I'd like to get your thoughts and reactions to, to what he has to say about this. What follows is an excerpt from Inoue's speech from the Four Seas Conference keynote address in 2019. He says, now let me ask the white folks in the room a question. When I addressed one, only my colleagues of color just a minute ago, how did you feel? How did it make you feel in your skin to be excluded? How did it feel to be talked about and not talked to? To be the object of the discussion and not the subject? How does it feel to be the problem? How does it make you feel to be the one in the way of progress, no matter what you have said or what your agendas are or how hard you have worked or how sincere you are? It's unfair, isn't it? You are good people, and yet you are the problem. 
but you don't want to be. Think about that for a minute. You can be a problem even when you try not to be. Sit and lament in your discomfort and its sources. Search. If our goal is a more socially just world, we don't need more good people. We need good changes, good structures, good work that makes good changes, structures, and people. Inoue continues by saying, quote, Are you uncomfortable yet? Do you feel misunderstood? Are you thinking he's not talking about me? He's speaking of those other white folks, the less conscious ones. Are you thinking, I know, he ain't talking about me. I'm so woke, I use the word woke. But I am talking about all of you. No white person escapes it. And because I am often racially ambiguous, I cannot exclude myself either. In the right light, I can be white, even if I don't get all the privileges that habitus or that set of dispositions is meant to confer in our society. So I'm going to tell you that you are going to be all right. I'm not, go- I'm not going to tell you, excuse me, I'm not going to tell you that you are going to be all right. I'm not going to say that you, you white folks in this room, are the special ones. You thinking you're special is the problem. It always has been because you and white people just like you who came before you have had the most power, decided most of the things, built the steel cage of white language supremacy that we exist in today, both in and outside of the academy, and likely many of you didn't, didn't know you did it. You just thought you were doing language work, doing teaching, doing good work, judging students and their languages in consentious and kind ways, helping them, preparing them, giving them what was good for them. White language supremacy in the writing classroom looks like standard American English. It looks like grades based on grammatical errors. It looks like the rubric for a paper that got an A. As a white instructor myself, I I continue to work to battle the forces of white language supremacy in my own life and in my own pedagogy and in my own practice. I've always had issues with how student writing was assessed and graded. I've always had issues with how, as teachers, we value a particular type of student over another. How in the academy, one type of research, one type of writing, one type of teacher is the best kind. The only kind to aim for. Writing is like this, too, especially in academia. That is why in this course we invite a more open idea about what writing is and what writing can be. My hope is that I can encourage you to action. That action is thinking about writing paradigms and how you might dismantle them. How you can use the voice and the power that you have to become a writer unbound by the confines of what writing is supposed to be for one kind of audience. My hope is that instead of an institutionalized, over-assessed, and often hated practice, writing can become something personal and powerful. A fingerprint, unique to the writer, harnessing the untapped potential of that writer's experience, culture, background, and flaws. Inoue offers us this from his keynote. This is a quote by Asuo Inoue. By Asuo Inoue. Quote, But there's more. White language supremacy also looks like this. The four authors of the article in CE that explains the process and the framework were all white women. To the leaders of the task force's credit, who are the authors of this article, they point to a place one can find all the task force members and their bios, a website. The paradox in this is that Peggy, Linda, Ann, and Kathy do not control their whiteness, but they do control how they deploy it, how they make it visible, and the privileges of leadership it conveys to them. 
This is not to say that they have not worked hard or deserve credit for their work, or even that the work they did isn't good work. It is to say that problematizing their own whiteness should reveal this kind of painful paradox, that good work done by conscientious white people can still kill people of color by codifying white language supremacy. The presence of their white bodies perpetuates historical racial injustices. Damned if they do, damned if they don't. There are no easy ways out of the steel cage of white language supremacy." End quote. So what are your takeaways from this studio? How might we dismantle this cage? What instances of white language supremacy do you see popping up in this very course that you're in right now, or in other courses that you have taken? And how can we all grow together to be better writers, and hopefully the best people we can? I'd like to close with a, with a poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar from 1899 called Sympathy, recited here by Dr. David E. Kirkland from New York University. Just to give you some background, Sympathy by Paul Lawrence Dunbar is one of my favorite poems. When I was a young kid, I tore the page out of a book and I carried, carried that poem with me throughout college. I was an English major. In fact, I got it tattooed to my arm because it was so important to me. Sympathy by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. I know what the cage bird feels, alas. When the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the wind steers soft through the springing grass, and the river flows like a stream of glass. When the first bird sings and the first bud opes and the faint perfume from its chalice steals, I know what the cage bird feels. I know why the cage bird beats his wing till his blood is red on the cruel bars, for he must fly back to his perch and cling when he fain would be on the boa swing. And a pain still throbs in the old, old scars, and they pulse again with a keener sting. I know why the cage bird beats his wing. I know why the cage bird sings, ah me. When his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free, it's not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the cage bird sings. 